Heavenly Father, this is your word. Maker of heaven and earth, creator of all things, speak through me now for your glory. Give me wisdom. Give us soft hearts to hear your word. Make us like your son by your Holy Spirit for your glory. Amen. We'll be looking at the rest of Jonah 1 this morning, verses 4 through 17. So please turn in your Bibles. Please have that open before you. It's page 774. And I will read that passage in its entirety. Verse 4, Jonah 1, verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked Jonah up and hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. If I were to ask you, what are the wonderful works of God? What are the great and unsearchable things that he has done? How would you answer? In the book of Job, we see Job answering this very question. In Job 5, it says this, But as for me, I would seek God, 
and I would place my cause before God, who does great and unsearchable things, wonders without number. He gives rain on the earth and sends water on the fields. So when Job is asked this question, what are the wonderful works of God? What are the great and unsearchable things he has done? Job says, rain. Rain is a great work of God. But is rain really a great and unsearchable thing that God does? Think about being a farmer. You desperately need the fields to be watered somehow. And if they are not, you have nothing to eat, your family has nothing to eat, and you have nothing to sell. Where will this water come from, all this water that you need? Well, John Piper has a great article on this passage in Job, and he walks through this verse by simulating a conversation between two people trying to explain how rain works. So the first person says this, where will the farmer get water for his fields? The second person answers, well, the sky. The sky? Water is just going to drop down from the sky? Well, not exactly. Water will have to be carried in the sky from the ocean several hundred miles and then be poured out from the sky onto the fields. Carried? How much does it weigh? Well, if one inch of rain falls on one square mile of farmland, that is over 1.6 billion pounds of water. Wow, that's heavy. So how does it get up into the sky and stay there if it's so heavy? Well, it gets up there by evaporation. Oh, really? That's a nice word. What does it mean? Well, it means that the water sort of stops being water so that it can go up into the air and go up and not down. Oh, I see. Well, then how does it, how does it go down? Well, condensation happens. What's that? The water starts becoming water again. Oh, okay. What about the salt? Salt? Yes, the ocean is salt water. That would kill the crops. What about the salt? Oh, okay. Well, the salt has to be taken out. Oh, okay. So the sky picks up a billion pounds of water from the sea, takes out the salt, then carries it for hundreds of miles and then dumps it on the farm? Well, it doesn't dump it out because if it dumped a billion pounds of water on the farm, the crops would be destroyed. So the sky drips the billion pounds of water so that they're just big enough to not evaporate as they fall one mile down, in, down to the ground and yet uh, big enough to not evaporate, yet small enough to not crush the crops. So he then ends the article by saying, I still don't see how drops ever get to the ground. Because if they start falling as soon as they are bigger than air, they would be too small and they would evaporate. But if they wait and come down, what holds them up until they're big enough to not evaporate? This is why we can call rain an unsearchable work of God. We don't fully understand what holds rain up so that it's just the right size to not evaporate yet not crush the crops. Rain is a wonderful work of God. Last week, we left Jonah running from God on a boat. 
And this morning, our passage opens with God sending wind and rain on this boat to bring Jonah back to himself. So while looking at the rest of Jonah 1 today, we will have two main points. And the first is that in love, God sends storms. A theme that runs through this passage is God's providence. God is able to do anything and everything he wants at any time. And the way things play out in our world because of God's plan is called providence. So we see it play out in our passage. First, we see that God hurls a great wind onto the sea, which brings a violent, windy storm. Then, in verse 7, we see the men casting lots, and the lot falls on Jonah. Then in verse 15, as soon as they throw Jonah into the ocean, the storm stops. And then in verse 17, we see God appointing a big fish to come and swallow Jonah. And then if we look at this chapter as a whole, we see that God is even using Jonah's disobedience to do what? One of the things he's doing through Jonah's disobedience is changing these sailors. The, one commentator points out that by the end of the story, these sailors are praying to Yahweh. They're sacrificing to him. They're making vows to him. So God is able to even use Jonah's disobedience for his glory. So one thing we should see this morning is that God is in control of all things. And picking up from the children's catechism from last week, question 13 asks, can God do all things? Many of you, I hope, know the answer. Yes, God can do all his holy will. And as Jonah runs down to Joppa to get on this boat, and as it sails away, the first response we see from God is not striking him dead. It's not talking directly to Jonah. Instead, God waits in his timing to send just the right circumstances to Jonah. He lets Jonah pay the fare. He lets him get on the boat. He lets him go down into it and fall asleep before he sends a storm to tell Jonah, wake up! And that is a major part of how God works in our lives, is it not? He sends storms. He'll send storms into every area of our life. He'll send a storm into your health, into your career. He'll send a storm into your family life. Maybe your car stops working or you can't find the right job or a meaningful relationship in your life falls apart. He'll send financial storms into your life. And the important thing to understand is that God has a purpose for every single storm that he sends into your life. There are no random storms in your life at any time. He will never just randomly send a storm into your life. Every single one of them has a purpose. It's as if every single drop of rain comes down because he told it to. And he timed it exactly. He said, okay, you're big enough now. Now you can drop down. There is love at the heart of our storms. There's love. That's why he sends them. 
Think about this. If God had not sent this storm, where would Jonah be? He would keep running from God. This storm stops him in his tracks. Sometimes it's the most loving thing God can do to send a storm into your life. It means that God is working in you. I mentioned last week James 1, verses 2 and 3, and I'll say it again here. This is why James can say, Consider it pure joy when you face storms of many kinds. It means God cares for you. He wants your faith in him to grow. He wants you to have a greater trust in him. Storms force you and I to depend on God in ways that we never would have without the storm. But there are other kinds of storms that come into our lives. Sometimes it's sin that brings a storm. In fact, all sin has a storm attached to it. These storms wake us up to our sin. They wake you up to your blindness, to your pride, to your self-sufficiency. Storms are hard to live through. It gets scary. We see that in the sailors. We know it for ourselves as we have gone through bad storms in our lives. They're scary. But it's God's way of working in us. It's his way of lovingly changing you. And because he loves Jonah, he sends a storm to him. Interestingly, the sailors are swept up in this Jonah storm. They were not the ones deliberately running from God, so why are they included in Jonah's storm? This helps us see that storms are a two-way street. What I mean by that is that sometimes you are impacted by the storms of others, and sometimes your storms impact those around you. Think of how one divorce can impact the husband's family, the wife's family, and the kids. Think of how a ministry leader committing adultery can bring down an entire organization. Or how a drug addict can negatively impact all the people around them. Sin brings storms. So the first point today is that God loves us by sending storms into our lives. And the second point this morning is that we are called to love our neighbors in their storms. So God loves us by sending us storms. But then we are called to go and love our neighbors in their storms. We see here in our text this morning that Jonah does just the opposite. Think about it. Here he is. He's a Jew, an Israelite, someone who knows God, a successful prophet. And he's surrounded by Gentiles. And at every turn, they are the ones doing the right thing. And Jonah doesn't. While they are concerned for those on the ship, Jonah is asleep. While they call out to their gods, Jonah is silent. While they pray and ask him to pray, he ignores them. It takes casting of lots for them to figure out it's Jonah's fault. Instead of Jonah just saying, hey, guys, I'm the one running from God. 
the storm's on me. My bad. It takes the casting of lots to figure that out. And one commentator connects this episode in Jonah to the parable of the Good Samaritan in the New Testament. This is a famous parable that Jesus told the Pharisees. And he told it to the Pharisees to help them see that the people they looked down upon, one people group was the Samaritans, they looked down on them. He told them this story to help them see that the Samaritans were better at loving their neighbor than the Pharisees were. The Samaritans were a Jewish people, but they had mixed and married with the Gentiles. So the Jews looked down upon the Samaritans because they were no longer fully pure-blooded Jews. And in Luke 10, an expert of the law, a Pharisee, asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? And Jesus, Jesus answers by telling a parable of the Good Samaritan. In this story, a man is attacked by robbers. They take his clothes, they beat him up, and they leave him half dead. A major storm has just come to this man's life. Then a priest walks upon this man and sees him. And he passes to the other side of the road and walks away. Then a Levite, another Israelite, someone who would have known God, passes to the other side of the road and walks away. But then a Samaritan comes, and he approaches this man, and he took pity on him. He takes care of the man's wounds. He pours oil and wine on him. He put the man on his own donkey. He brought the man to an inn, which apparently was a dangerous place in that culture. And he takes care of him. The next day, he gives the innkeeper two full days' worth of wages. And then he says this, Look after him, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. This is an open-ended financial relationship that the Samaritan has just entered into with this stranger. And Jesus ends this parable by saying, The Samaritan was the one who loved his neighbor in the middle of his storm. And here in our passage this morning, we see Jonah doing the exact opposite. First, Jonah runs from God, and now we see him ignoring his neighbor. He's sleeping on the boat. When they wake him up, they ask him to pray, and we don't see him pray. He doesn't confess that the storm is his fault, and they have to find that out by lots. Now, he does say to the sailors, guys, throw me in and the storm will be stopped. And this seems like a, a good job, Jonah. You finally are doing the right thing. However, in chapter 4, we see twice where Jonah says, talking to God, he says, Oh, Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. A few verses later, he says, It is better for me to die than to live. So it may, not, it may not be that Jonah was sacrificing himself, but rather that Jonah had a death wish. I don't want to go to the Ninevites. Kill me. He may just be wishing the sailors would kill him. 
Either way, his behavior is awful in this chapter. And the sailors are caring for their neighbors better than he is. They pray to their gods. They throw things off the boat to help in the storm. They cast lots trying to figure out the problem. Then, even after Jonah tells them to throw him into the sea, they don't. And they're like, no, 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 Jonah, we're not going to throw you in. Let's, let's row. Let's get back to dry land. And that doesn't work. Then they call out to Yahweh, Jonah's God. They call out and pray to Yahweh, a God they do not personally know, before Jonah does. Here you have not only an Israelite in Jonah, you have one of his prophets. These are the men who spoke the very words of God. And yet he's acting exactly like the priest and the Levite in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Jonah is the anti-Good Samaritan in this chapter. He ignores the needs of his neighbors here. And instead, it's the Gentiles who are doing the right thing. So there's two observations I want to hit on here. First is that God uses the non-believers in your life to wake up your faith. And God is clearly using these men to wake up Jonah's faith. He works through these non-believers. Did you happen to catch the first words Jonah hears when he gets waken up on the boat? It's in verse 6. Arise! Call out! And these were the exact words God said to Jonah in verse 2. How disturbing that must have been for Jonah to hear the exact words that he had heard from God. Arise, call out. And now he is woken up and he hears it from this Gentile captain. Arise, call out. And then it happens again in verse 10. The sailors say to him, what is this you have done? This is exactly what God says to Eve in Genesis 3 after they eat from the fruit of the tree. He says, what is this you have done? In both situations, in the garden and now here with Jonah, the sinners are hiding. Adam and Eve hid themselves from the presence of God and Jonah is in the inner part of the boat asleep. Another way these men are used by God to wake up Jonah's faith is with their fear. And I don't know if you caught this. It's mentioned several times throughout the passage. Their fear is growing. First, they're afraid because of the storm. Second, they're afraid when they find out Jonah has been running from God. And then third, they are most afraid when the storm is calmed. Isn't that interesting? And ironically, when Jonah answers all their questions, they pepper him with like five questions after they cast lots and find out it's his fault. He answers by saying, I'm a Hebrew, I fear the Lord. Jonah says with his lips the right thing, I fear God, I'm a Hebrew. But he doesn't seem to be very fearful of God, does he? He's running He's falling asleep. He's ignoring his neighbor. 
The sailors are sober-minded. They see what's going on. They see a man running from his God, and they are terrified. So God is clearly using these sailors to prick Jonah's conscience. And the same is true for us. God will use the non-believers in our life to wake up our faith, to call us out in our sin. The second observation I want to make is that there is a connection between the two greatest commandments in your life. What are the two greatest commandments? Jesus says in the New Testament, in the New Testament, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. These are the two great commandments. And what I want you to see is that there is a connection between these two in your life. First, we saw Jonah running from God. He broke the first commandment. Now we see him ignoring his neighbor. He's breaking the second commandment. Isn't it the same for you and me? How can we possibly love our neighbor as ourselves when we are not first loving God with our, all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? And the opposite is true, too. If we are loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, how can we not love our neighbor as ourselves? So disobeying the first commandment will lead to a disobedience in the second commandment. And the reverse side is true. If we obey the first commandment, we can't help but obey the second commandment of loving our neighbors as ourselves. So this is the point, the second point of our text today. We are called to love our neighbors in their storms. One commentator, while looking at this passage in Jonah, helps us understand what it means to really love our neighbors. First, he asks, who is my neighbor? And isn't that a question we have when we see in the Bible, love your neighbor as yourself? Well, who is that, God? Who are you telling me to love when you say that? This is what he says. Anyone at all in need, regardless of race, religion, values, and culture, is your neighbor. How should I view my neighbor? As made in God's image. God's image is on every person of all races and classes, no matter who has ever been made in all of history, has God's image on them. Next, he asks, what does it mean to love my neighbor in their storms? It means meeting the most practical, physical, material, and economic needs that they have. We saw that in the Good Samaritan, entering into an open-ended financial relationship with that man. Why do we love our neighbors this way? Simply because every person is made in God's image. Even, even in those who deserve nothing but judgment, often that's what we do, right? We look on the outside and we think, are they deserving of my love? Are they deserving of my help? And John, John Calvin is quoted in relation to this text to help us answer that question. Why do we love our neighbors this way? This is what Calvin says. Remember not to consider men's evil intention, 
So don't look at their outward actions. But look upon the image of God in them. Don't determine your love. This is my paraphrase. Don't determine your love for your neighbor based on their actions, but instead determine your love for your neighbor based on the image of God in them. Calvin goes on and continues and says, This, the image of God in them, cancels their transgressions and with its beauty and dignity allures us to love and embrace them. So Calvin is saying we are to love our neighbors simply because they're made in God's image. And the image of God in people should cancel out any wrongdoing they've done in our eyes. Nothing should stop us from loving them. So what does this mean practically? This is is what it means practically, a a few examples. So it, it means Christians cannot think that the only way to love people is by sharing the gospel with them. Now, obviously, what is the most loving thing you can do to someone? Share the gospel with them, right? Loving people spiritually, that's the most important thing we could do for someone. But what we see here this morning is that that's not the only thing that we should do for people. That's not the only way we can love our neighbor. Sometimes we can get stuck and think, the spiritual way is the only way I can love my neighbor. And if we look around, we see that neighbors all around us have storms happening in their lives. And God sends you into their lives to help them through those storms. That could be financial, it could be physical, it could be emotional or spiritual. Think of how God has used those around you to help you in your storms. An example in my life is a little over four years ago, I tore my ACL. I was playing basketball, really thought I was doing great, and the Lord just wanted to humble me. He wanted to do a lot of things, but that night, you know, I was making a few shots, did a jump stop, tore my ACL. Big storm, big storm in our life. Well, God followed that by sending tons of people into our lives, my wife and I's life, to help us in many different ways. He gave us a doctor in our church who checked out my knee for free so that we wouldn't have to pay for the initial appointment. He gave us friends at church that gave us meals. My boss one day brought me lunch and watched a movie with me, which seems so trivial and simple. But when you are injured and you can't walk, you get lonely. And for him to just come and be there with me and hang out with me spoke so much. Just his presence helped me in that storm. So God sends neighbors into your life to help you in your storms. And as a result, you are called to go and help neighbors in their storms simply because they are made in God's image. So again, we sometimes get stuck in the rut. Just share the gospel with them. But think about how God has loved you. Has God only loved you spiritually? No. He doesn't just give you the gospel, change your heart, give you the Holy Spirit, and then leave you alone. He does everything else, right? He provides for you financially. 
He physically cares for you by providing food, water, clothing, a house. He provides a car for you, a job. He gives you wisdom to walk according to his plan for you. He provides for you socially by giving you friends and family. Obviously, he cares for you spiritually, but that's not the only way he loves you. And in the same way, we are called to love those around us in their storms. One of the most well-known songs to a show that my kids and I love watching together is Mr. Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. One of the songs that comes up almost every single episode is that there are many ways to say I love you. There are many ways to say I care about you. And somehow that is a phrase that has stuck with our family, and I love that. I love saying that with my boys. There are many ways to say I love you. Think of how many different ways God has told you he loves you. And now he's sending you out, saying there are many ways for you to tell your neighbor you love them. So ask yourself, how can I help my neighbor in their storms this week? This is loving your neighbors as yourself. Loving God will lead to a love for your neighbor. Following the first commandment will lead to following the second commandment. So God loves us by sending storms into our life, and we are called to love our neighbors in their storms. Lastly, as we compare the life of Jonah with the life of Christ, we see that, once again, Jonah is a picture of the true Jonah who was to come. When put in this exact same situation, Jesus helped his neighbors. You may be asking, when was Jesus in this situation? Well, in Mark 4, we read of Jesus going through the same thing as Jonah. Both are out in the water in boats. Both are overtaken by sudden storms. Both storms are violent. Both Jonah and Jesus are surprisingly asleep in the boat in the midst of the storm. In both cases, the other in the boat come and they wake him up and they cry out that they need his help. In both cases, there is a miraculous intervention by God and the sea is calmed. After the storm is calmed, both the sailors with Jonah and the disciples with Jesus are even more afraid than they were during the storm. But the difference is that while Jonah gets thrown into the sea to calm the storm, Jesus speaks to it to silence it. And actually what's happening is Jonah getting thrown into the ocean is a picture of what Jesus would do for us. Jesus would later get thrown into the ultimate storm of God's divine wrath. The wrath that you deserve, the wrath that I deserve. Jesus was thrown into that storm to bring peace between you and God. Jesus is the true good Samaritan, caring for his neighbor at great cost to himself. Jesus obeyed the first commandment, loving his father with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
And it led to him to obeying the second commandment, loving you and me as himself. You are his neighbor, and he laid down his life for you. He has calmed the ultimate storm between you and God. So as we go out of here today, we should think of how Christ has sacrificially loved us, that we may go out into our families, our neighborhoods, our workplaces, our community, and love others around us simply because they are made in God's image. So let the sacrifice of Christ motivate you to sacrifice for the good of those around you. Amen.